let's talk about digital identity, the podcast connecting identity and business. I am your host, Oscar Santolaya. Hello and thank you for joining today to a new episode of Let's Talk About Digital Identity. And I am, and, and I, I'm sure many of you, if not all of you, are remote workers right now. So we are going to talk about some of the implications of remote working and what other things have happened because of COVID-19 in this area of digital identity. And for that, I'm going to introduce for the second time our guest who has been um, exactly 11 months ago. UV Secure CEO Simon Wood, who was here talking about many aspects about what happened in data identity in UV Secure, giving some predictions. And let's see what happened not only in these 11 past months, but especially in the very recent weeks. So let's welcome Simon Wood. Hello, Simon. Hi, Oscar. Uh, thank you for having me back again. Yeah, it's great having you here now. We're going to discuss a bit different topics because we are living quite different times. <laughs> what happened last year? So let's jump you know, directly into this. Uh, so now that COVID-19 has affected every single industry, how do you think it has affected particularly the digital identity industry? Yeah, so I mean, obviously right now we are in quite an unprecedented time for all industries. We see a landscape where businesses are having to adapt quickly to this new unfolding situation, start planning for what the situation will become. And, and we don't know that yet, but there's fairly wide acceptance that we will arrive at some new normal uh, as we go forward. Certainly how interactions have taken place, the default models, I think, will shift as we go forwards. Priorities will have to be slightly different as well. You know, right now, as employers, we're looking after employees as a first priority. We've got to serve our, our customers and make sure that they can continue receiving services that they need. And then kind of the, the core business itself. In the general sense, it's interesting to see how businesses are, are behaving relative to their stated values. You know, a number of businesses publish. And these are complex times. And for all industries, we have to kind of practice what we preach. And I think, you know, for the digital identity industry, that couldn't be more true. We have the technology base and, and arguably the responsibility to be flag bearers for the four key aspects that we look to from digital identity. So security, efficiency, user experience, regulatory compliance. Those are areas which will remain key, which are key. And that enablement through digital identity is one of the ways that I will see us, the industry as a whole adapting as we go forwards. So I think there's going to be a specific requirement for you know, us to uh, essentially practice what we preach uh, around that. There are some sort of vague silver linings around this as well. So, you know, in the, in the game, in the more general sense, what we see with the ongoing globalization that all industries have been going through in recent years is that brings remote working. And what we see now is a somewhat enforced fast tracker adoption of that. And again, I think it's down to the digital identity industry to assist organizations with that and, uh, and help lead the way on that. Mm -hmm. Yes, definitely. As you said, uh, we should do what we preach. And now it's a good time to, to put many things that the digital identity industry has been uh, offering. And with relatively low adoption, now is the time to to put them in practice in in both uh, businesses and and for the organizations that need it, the people also need it. So an, another yeah, absolutely another thing that we discussed recently in one of our podcasts has been the digitalization and digitalization. One of the conclusions, let's say, we had with uh, our guest uh, Mario Cani Noya, he, and that many organizations already adopted digitalization already for, for many years, but many are still 
in the halfway, let's say. So that's very clear. And that's something that that's halfway. And there's still a lot to do into that. And digitalization has been a, a concept that has been talked, discussed, and also put in practice, of course, during the last 10 years at least. So how things have changed today related to digitalization? Yeah, so, I mean, digitalization, does it mean something different today? I don't think it means something different. How organizations approach it now, I think that's radically changing right now. As you say, there are varying levels of adoption around the world right now in terms of where organizations are with a digitalization strategy, with their online you know, virtual service enablement, if you like. I think it's fair to say we've been through uh, a slow evolution over the last what, two to three decades, 20 to 30 years or so, digital services have been brought alongside existing physical services. So, you know, retail organizations have started with high street presence, and then they've brought on e-commerce capabilities alongside that. Now, obviously, some people might challenge my use of the word slow. We are living in a time of rapid technology change. But I think relative to right now, what we've seen before and up till now has been a slow evolution. Whether we would classify this inflection point right now as a revolution or not, I'm not sure. We're not particularly talking about new technology at this point. We're talking about a much broader scale adoption. So I think that's kind of the, the underlying landscape behind this. You know, without a doubt right now, we're definitely in a digital first time. We see limitations on physical interaction right now. You know, many of the countries around the world are in physical lockdown right now. We have restrictions on us for the safety of, of citizens, for people, for protection. Of course, that will evolve over time and that will change. But right now, if your customer engagement strategy relies on you interacting with people, that face-to-face that -face mechanism is no longer there and organizations have to adapt now and, and really do need to adopt that, that digital first approach. So in terms of the interaction mechanism, in terms of how that relationship builds, develops, grows, and then ultimately transacts, has to move to digital first and eventually face-to-face -face, if necessary as a second supporting piece on that. And this is not in itself new. We've seen a number of organizations, a number of sectors looking towards that model already. Here in the UK, and the UK is certainly not unique in this, we see the rise of online banking now, not from you know the established players, but from new online-only bank providers. They are challenging the market. They don't have high street presence. They are essentially mobile-first, digital-first touch points for all of their customer base. And the high street banks who've been trading with face-to-face -face customer service as their benefit are now having to, to catch up on that really quickly. So we can see already the separation between those who've adopted that digital-first strategy and those who haven't. The second side to this is it's actually really interesting to see the effects of digital citizenship as well. So not just looking at commercial supply, but also government interaction as well. We've spoken before about some of the differences that we see between countries that are based on digital citizenship and countries that aren't. Obviously, from a Ubersecure point of view, we have a very strong footprint in Finland. Finland is very much a digital citizenship based country. That presence of a strong highly assured identity. That's been the norm for a number of years. And now, of course, all of the services there, not just government services, but, but private industry as well, leveraged that identity. So there are countries that have had a digital first approach for quite some time. If you look at the national culture in Finland, it is digital first. Everyone expects to interact with services through their mobile device, through their web browser. So there are places in the world where the absolute impact of this has been reduced slightly. Of course, none of that mitigates the, the human aspects of this. But from a digital first proposition, there are significant, significant benefits from that underlying digital citizenship ecosystem that's in place. And it's interesting to see the differences in the leverage there as well. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's definitely digitalization is something that now is becoming more and more important and it makes evident the organizations that had already put more effort into that, not only in the on the business side, as you said, the supply chain, etc., but also on the governments. For instance, today with this crisis, many governments, well, all governments, are trying to help their citizens one way or another. There are different types of crises in every, in every country. And the ones who don't have a, a strong e-government digitalized services are struggling more to not only to give the support to the citizens, but also even to communicate with them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Absolutely. And we can see different principles applying around this as well. So a number of countries are looking into citizen trackers, for example, to, to understand spread of the COVID-19 virus and to understand who you might have been in contact with so they can manage you know, the gradual easing of lockdown situations. Those tracking scenarios, and of course, we need to be we need to be wary of the negative connotation mm, of, yes. of tracking as well. But those those tracking scenarios are much simpler to deliver in a framework where a strong regulated, so you know, privacy is regulated into that strong identity as well. But where that strong identity exists, it makes those interactions much more practical. Yeah, instead, and most likely, those tracing efforts are more secure and respecting more the privacy on their citizens when there is already. Um, data identity involved in the already involved already implemented in the e-government services so yes absolutely so switching to another thing and actually the first things i was talking in this conversation putting attention into that most of us are remote workers some have been partly remote workers people have been doing remote work for a few days a week but now almost everybody who in in some industries, almost everybody has to do it. And that has put some pressure to the to the companies, to the organizations to also deliver services to allow the to the employees to access uh, both internal and external services. And until recently, uh, we were discussing very clearly with the, the difference between traditional or workplace identity access management versus what we do more in UV Secure that is focused on, on customers, CIM. So, but it feels like this difference is getting much more blurry in this time. So what would you say about that, the influence of remote working into that? Yeah, absolutely. And that's that's actually a really interesting point. I think what we're seeing now, beyond anything else, is change, as you say, a blurring of those lines between what were previously differently targeted segments of identity and access management. So we had a very strong separation between organizers providing employee or probably more generally workforce identity and access management and organizations providing external, so customer, consumer identity and access management. I think if we take a step back and look at the the history of digital identity and how it's evolved, you know, if we go back to what was kind of the, the starting point, it was really basic single sign-on delivered by IT departments for the efficiency benefits and security benefits of of organizations. That was very strictly for employees. It was highly mandated. It it was, you know, in reality, some fairly poor user experiences around that. But it was mandated on the back of security, on the back of corporate protection. And so IT could demand this. It gave overall efficiency benefits. But I think it's quite clear to see that in the initial implementations, the the employee was was a loser there in the experience and the friction that was generated through those deployments. What we then saw was a 
a move to bringing uh, external identity. So handling customers, being able to interact with customers in a known way, wanting to have an identity there. So conversations could be aggregated. Transactions could be undertaken more securely with those customers, with those consumers outside of the organization structure. And we saw there that we still see today, obviously low friction, customer experience, user experience is critical. Uh, Abandonment rates of e-commerce transactions, online interactions are high if there are challenges to that interaction. And that's where that's where the field of customer or consumer identity and access management came from. From a from a Ubersecure point of view, I think we would now consider that external identity management. And we see that extending now, not just to customers, but also to, to partners. So uh, supply chains, subcontractors, those kind of entities who are working with the organization to deliver services. We've seen a rise of, of cyber attacks. We've seen with the strengthening of the direct IT ecosystem, the cyber criminals are now going after supply chains uh, as a target to come into organizations. And so we're correspondingly seeing the need for that identity management being pushed out to those supply chains as well. So we're now starting Starting to bring together the different actor classes that we have involved with the organization. But if you kind of step back and, and look at some of those supply chains that you might use, if you've got contractors working for, for your organization, they are a B2B supplier to you, but they could be sitting alongside your employees, in, in some cases doing very similar roles. And that equivalence of work is now kind of blurring that experience. So there are some remaining differences, of course. One of the original differences between internal identity and external identity was simply scale. An organization with 100,000 employees is quite a big organization. An organization with 100,000 customers is is kind of just starting, you know, depending on what your customers are taking from you, that can be quite a small customer base. Today, most organizations, when they build, are building for internet scale. So we're, we're thinking about hundreds of millions or billions of separate identities interacting with the, with the platform. So scale no longer is the challenge that it used to be. Of course, there's complexity there. Of course, it has to be addressed correctly. But that scale is now easier for all parties to handle, to deal with. We have established um, solutions uh, around that. So the, the only remaining point you get is user experience, friction. And it would seem a very strange position um, for us to be in where we said employees didn't deserve the simplicity and ease of use and capabilities that we give to our to our customers, to our suppliers, to our partners. And I think on that basis, we will see this blurring becoming more and more, more prevalent as we go forwards. And I think we will see more and more of, of the analysts talking about unified IEM, um, aggregated solutions, and whether in the first instance they're delivered through you know joint partnerships between what were traditionally external providers and internal providers, or whether they are are single providers uh, embracing all aspects we will see as we go forwards but absolutely i, I see that that blurring and coming together and delivering the key benefits that, that we have from um, identity and access management in a balanced fashion between those internal and external identities mm-hmm. one of the aspects i read some articles are the onboarding of new employees right now so what are for instance the challenges there onboarding completely new employees on this right now yeah so i mean onboarding an employee is a different process to onboarding a customer. Although that said, when you start looking at, if you consider transaction value, an employee transaction value is reasonably high, that employee in corporate terms. One of the points that that I make quite regularly is that identity itself actually carries little value. I use the analogy of someone being on a desert island. You still have your personal identity, but when you're alone on that desert island, it's not worth very much at all. Identity becomes valuable in in the context of of a transaction. 
when companies onboard employees, they are looking to understand uh, a significant amount around that employee because the transactions that they're undertaking with that employee, be them from a, a risk basis or simply from a, a salary and, and delivery basis, are materially high. When a organization onboards an external customer, it could be for a, a low value transaction and, and therefore the onboarding process for that external customer is simpler, but it could also be for a high value transaction. So th think about the complexity of a bank onboarding a, a business customer. The amount of KYC that has to be done is, is significant. It's also regulated in, in that particular example, but there, there is a large amount of know your customer that has to be performed. Uh, and in some cases, actually that, that onboarding process for the external identity can be have a higher bar than the onboarding process for internal identities. Now, there, there are ways to look at those things. And, and as we've learned through various of these podcasts, there are different ways that can be done. For example, LEIs that Secure is also able to, to supply can ease that KYC process from an organizational point of view. But when you look at the employee side, that kind of join a mover lever process is still part of that more generic know your employee, if you like, and that there are still parallels there. So yes, traditionally, there have been differences between those processes. But as we go forwards, actually, I, I still think that's part of the blurring line set. Mm -hmm. Another particular scenario also is imagine a company, well, many companies are, <laughs> you know, have to imagine, the, just think of the companies that today are suffering because the employees majority are now, if not all, remote. They cannot access the applications that always, they always used to run in the internal network. So the challenge is, okay, opening some of these applications to be accessed through internet. And so for some business, let's say business owners, they say, okay, talk to the IT, the CIO, uh, I do it immediately because we need this in order to keep the business running. But what is the complexity behind that in order to do it properly, to do it in a, in a secure way? Yeah, well, this, um, <laughs> there's a lot of complexity behind that to, to do that securely. And of course, it, while, while the CIO may be wanting to open up and get everyone connected, a little bit of CISO that's, that's um, raising a flag saying, <laughs> wait, wait a minute, are we sure that, that we can do this in a way that's safe? I've already mentioned kind of four key areas that, that we see as prominent in a transition to an identity-centric era. So security, experience, user experience, whether they're internal or external users, efficiency and compliance. When you look at the traditional landscape, enterprise applications, they, they ran inside you know, a closed walled garden of the IT infrastructure. IT ruled that from a security perspective with a fairly iron fist. And for you know that gave them security, gave them a perimeter which, which could be defended. But of course, a number of the applications which then existed inside of that perimeter re relied on that, relied on that walled garden to give them their security. We have, of course, seen a long-standing transition to, to cloud, to software as a service. And right now, that's really helping with, with business continuity. So, you know, people who have adopted, you know, for example, Salesforce, that's supplied externally. You can access that from home as easily as you can and as safely as you can from your, from your desk at, at the office. So some of those systems are already working in that way. Of course, we always have to remember that uh, one person's cloud is another person's data center. So, you know, cloud is only ever a matter of perspective on, on, on this. And, and we're then mm -hmm. reliant on these other organizations to make sure that that's done in the right way. But when you reach the scale of, you know, of the likes of, of Salesforce, for example, then there's good reassurance that they're, they're working in that way. The main challenge that the CIO or the CISO will have in terms of uh, deploying those applications beyond that traditional premise footprint or walled garden footprint of the IT is balancing those four key areas, so security, experience, efficiency, compliance, and balancing them 
with cost of delivering that. There are traditional solutions of extending the IT domain into, into people's houses. So if we think about a VPN, virtual private network based solutions, but there are challenges and, and risks with that because you're, you're basically extending the perimeter to, to particular endpoints. So you're, you're dragging that perimeter essentially inside people's homes by deploying a, a VPN on, onto a laptop. That can be a workable solution, uh, but you then inherit the risks of mixing those two different environments. So you're now mixing that home environment with that work environment. Some organizations have very strict policies that, that prohibit any external use of equipment that might be viable. But these days, you know, with, with work life balance considerations and so on, there's generally a blurring of those lines as well. So we see devices having to handle, you know, web browsing sessions for someone to top up their latest Amazon purchase or whatever at lunchtime, along with carrying on their normal business function. So it's hard to maintain that, that separation between those two different personas, if you like. And that then leads to those walls getting a little bit weaker as you use the as you're on VPN type technologies. So the other approach, the alternative approach, is to use a, a strong identity-based approach and have zero trust on each application that you're connecting to. And of course, that's the identity and access management-based proposition around this. So each application requires authentication of the user and delivers services only as required to that user. It doesn't rely on running within that, that walled garden of IT to inherit its security. It will expose a, a zero trust interface. You need to authenticate. It needs to be able to find your authentication details, match them to authorization for whatever features, functions, capabilities you may have and deploy in that fashion. Once you're at that point, of course, then you can deliver to every party that's involved, be they internal or external, in a very symmetric fashion. But it's not a simple challenge. It's also not a challenge that organizations should should rush into either. You know, so, so while people feel under a lot of pressure to, to deliver continuity right now, and of course, there's, there's always significant business pressure, these changes are fairly large changes. They're not small projects, these kind of digital transformation, digital first projects. They need to be handled carefully. They need to be handled correctly. And you, you need to work with experienced, trusted parties in this. And that's where the various players within the uh, identity and access management ecosystem can, can assist with that. Mm-hmm. Yes, but in, in the second wave of solving this problem, yeah, it's, of course, identity and access management. And well, at least it's a, it's a good time. It's, it's, as you said, it's not that something that you can enable immediately, but it's a, it's a good time to, to start planning that and doing that. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Simon, for all this. I will ask you a final question, as always, something something practical, but now focus on what we are living today. We are living today the more and more digital interactions instead of face-to-face interactions. Um, and as you already have explained, that there are more cybersecurity threats. So thinking of this, please leave us with a tip, with a practical advice for anybody to protect our digital identities. Absolutely. And I'm afraid, unapologetically, I'm going to actually give the same the same tip as I gave 11 months ago when I was here. And it ties into to the previous point. These aren't things to be rushed into. And the tip that I gave last time is whenever you're about to make a, a decision, you get a pop up in front of you. Just pause. Take a few extra seconds to think about what is it you're clicking on? Who is actually asking for you to enter credentials? Does the link look sen- sensible? Just take an extra second to understand the action you're about to undertake. Does it look real? Does it look valid? There's an old saying, act in haste, repent at leisure. And I think that's that's very true right now. 
it is a sad state of affairs that we see a rise in cyber attacks at this time. The cyber criminals are exploiting the fact that, that people are working from home, that people are using not 100% optimized systems to deliver that. There's a reason why, why we refer to these people as the bad actors. So just take that extra second and think about it. Of course, the right systems and solutions can can help with that. An effective digital first transition can can give benefits around that. It would be remiss of me not to point out that Ubisecure is ideally placed to assist organizations with, with that transition. We've got a lot of educational material on our website. We've got long-term customer case studies there that, that show the effects, the results, the benefits of those digital first approaches and the savings that can be made around that. So from you know from Ubisecure point, from a personal point, I'd love to provide assistance to anybody looking into this and uh, uh, hopefully uh, become one of those trusted devices as, as we go forwards and, and start to move into whatever that new normal will become. Yeah, thank you, Simon, for that final advice. Definitely to take an extra second or, or minute, but uh, yeah, not being rushed to do everything that is prompted. Yeah, you never know what's, what's going to happen. So it's always good to take this extra uh, precaution moment. Simon, please finally tell us how we can um, remind us, how we can um, get in touch with you or follow you, whatever those ways. Yeah, absolutely. So we have, uh, as, as I mentioned, uh, a great website with lots of information on there, www.ubisegear.com. You can follow us on Twitter as well. We publish a lot of information on there. So there, there are a number of standard touch points that you can uh, get hold of us on. So uh, yeah, love to hear from anybody interested. Great. Well, thanks a lot, Simon, and all the best. Cheers. Thank you, Oscar. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk About Digital Identity, produced by Ubisecure. Stay up to date with episode at ubisecure.com slash podcast or join us on Twitter at ubisecure and use the hashtag LTADI. Until next time, 